One Hope Church. So good morning, and we're starting this morning, Acts chapter 15. Very glad you're here today um, to worship the Lord together. And uh, let's go ahead in prayer, and then we'll get right into the lesson for this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege to be here today. Dear God, please um, cleanse and purify our hearts and minds by your word. Help us to have um, understanding as we read these things and um, learn the, the truth that is there and also how to apply that truth um, in our day, in our time, in our culture. Um, dear God, we thank you for your great love for us that despite the fact that we are sinners, that we uh, have a propensity to rebel against you and to do what is wrong, that you, God, in your great love, have provided salvation for us uh, through the death of your Son and through his resurrection. And so, Jesus, it's in your name that we, that we lift up and that we ask these things today. In your name, Jesus. Amen. Okay, so from last week, I want to just give the end of chapter 14, where we finished off there. Uh, the, Paul and Barnabas have basically gone on their first missionary journey, and that has been completed. On the way back through uh, to the home base at Antioch of Pisidia, um, major city there in the Roman Empire, they uh, stopped back at some of the churches. They just encouraged, and some of the churches, they were able to go ahead and appoint elders, um, leadership in the church. So those churches are to be you know, locally you know, governed, uh, and run, but as we're going to see in 15, there's also still the authority that the apostles have back in Jerusalem, and the church leaders there have back in Jerusalem to help to decide um, issues of difficulty. Um, and when differences of opinion, you know, arose, they would oftentimes go back to the church at Jerusalem. At least while we still have the apostles on the scene, because they're the ones that have that had authority at this time given to them by Jesus. Uh, to build the church. And so uh, this is the reason uh, that we're going to see here uh, of what happens in chapter 15. So let's begin in chapter 15, verse 1, where it says, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brethren, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brethren. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Now let's stop there for a moment because this begins our first you know, big question. And this is a huge question. This is really the biggest question for every person on our planet. How is someone made right with God? How is someone reconciled back into relation with God? You know, it's the question of how is a person saved? How is a person saved from their sin? How is a person saved from the penalty of their sin? Is ultimately what is being 
asked here. Now, there are some believers. Now, notice this, that they're believers, but they belong to the party of the Pharisees. They had been grown up in, the, in that tradition and culture. And they recognize, yes, Jesus is the Messiah. Okay, but they have a cultural problem that they're still viewing salvation as, as par, at least partially and necessarily coming from the law of Moses and from the practice of circumcision. And they have the issue right, because when they say it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the whole law of Moses, those things go together. As Paul actually is facing the same issue when he writes the book of Galatians, the entire book of Galatians is really about that issue, about people claiming you have to be circumcised in order to be you know, saved, especially if you're a male, you have to be circumcised in order to be saved. And so... Paul says in Galatians 5.3 that, you know, to say that a person has to be circumcised is to obligate them to the entire law. That those things cannot be separated. Okay, it's to obligate them to the entire law. In order to keep the, to keep the law of Moses. So that's, that's a huge question. Are they right or are they wrong? So let's read here in verses 6 through 11 and see what the apostles and elders say. So it says in verse 6, the apostles and elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke or a burden on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. So here's the answer to the question. Now, remember, at this point, there has been a lot of debate. Many words have been thrown back and forth, many sentences, many paragraphs. It's probably gotten a bit heated, you know, in this room. And then Peter says, hey, let's remember what has happened. The undeniable facts of the preaching to the Gentiles and how God gave them the same Holy Spirit that he gave us, that God did not make a distinction between them and us in this issue of salvation and fellowship with him. And he says, now, why are you, he asks this question, why are you putting God to the test? Because this is really about testing God. What has God said about it? But it's also a burden to people. By putting this burden on them that neither we nor our, that neither our fathers nor we were able to carry. Because really, when we have to understand that the whole point of the law is to show the holiness of God and that we as sinful humans cannot consistently and do not consistently keep the entire law. We, we fail. It's a mirror that shows us we are sinful. And in that realm, it still has a role to play even today. You know, you, you, know, you don't need it as much to go there so hard in a culture where everybody says, you know, hey, I know I'm sinful. Like when we're in, in Mexico, you know, people say, you know, I know... I'm sinful. Well, you don't have to, you know, beat them over the head with a law. 
But sometimes in our culture, when people say, I know that I'm good, we use the law to show them that they're not. For example, if somebody says, you know, I'm a good person. We say, well, have you ever told a law? Well, yes, of course I've told a law. Well, what is a person who tells laws? A liar. It's like, okay, are you still a, are you still a good person? You know, like, by what standard are you a good person? You know, compared to an, an evil dictator, are you a good person? Okay, compared to a holy God, are you a good person? You know, absolutely not. And so we can use the law to show people their, their sinfulness. Just like the law was used to show us our sinfulness, that we had offended a holy God. So it's still useful in that purpose, but it could not save them. And it could not save these Gentiles that were now being preached to. Because the good news of Jesus is what saves people. That he died on the cross for our sins and that he rose from the dead. As we see here, those key words that Peter gives, he gives two key words in here. Grace and faith. And it's important that we understand and we're able to define those words. Like, what do, they, what do we mean by faith? You know, faith, very simply, is to trust. You have faith that the chair that you're sitting in right now holds your weight and you don't just land on the floor, right? Now, the object of your faith is important. If you sit down in a chair that's not made very well and it falls down under your weight, well, that amount, that what faith that you had didn't really matter because it didn't hold you because it was poorly constructed. But these chairs that you're sitting right on in now were constructed fairly well and are, and are adequate for the job. And so your faith is well placed. And that's where the grace part comes in. Because grace is, the grace is what God is doing for us. The gifts that God is giving to us, the gift that God gives to us that we certainly do not deserve. Because God does more than just give us mercy. You know, mercy is when you don't receive the punishment you deserve. And that's tied up here in the grace. That's under the umbrella of grace. But grace is more than just mercy. Because the grace doesn't just, you know, free you from the penalty. It also puts you in relationship with God. And gives you a seat at the table in the family of God. That's what grace does for you. It's God, God's grace that provides salvation. Not us working for it. But there's a problem with that, and that problem is based on our cultural pride and our, our, our human pride. We don't want that to be enough. We don't want that to be enough. That it's by God's grace through faith. We want to be able to say, but I did something to where I deserve. I have earned. It wasn't just a gift given to me, but I earned it. That's our human pride speaking. I have to do something to add to what Jesus did on the cross. So in this case, in their cultural context, it was circumcision. But today, things are also added. Good works. If you don't do the good works, then you're not saved. Baptism. If you're not baptized, you're not, you're not saved. Speaking in tongues. If you haven't spoken in tongues yet, then 
Obviously, you're not saved. There's something, you gotta, there's something you've got to do. If you're not part of this particular church, then you're not saved. You know, there's all these little things that people will, will add on if you don't go through a particular ceremony. But they want it to be something that takes it beyond grace and faith. But what, you know, Paul gives this summary of it in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for he says, For by grace you have been, been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one can brag. It's about what God has done and entering in by faith into what God has done. But we understand that God is the initiator of it all because we love him because he first loved us, as the scripture says. Because he sent Jesus to the cross for us to pay for our sins. We had nothing to do with that. Because Jesus was raised from the dead, we had nothing to do with that. That was the power of God, not the power of man. And all of that, it is God you know, working, and, and it's God who convicts us of our sin by the Holy Spirit that says, hey, you need more than what you have. You are not adequate for the job. You are not adequate for the job of salvation. You are sinful and offended a holy God. And our response is in faith is, yes, Lord, you're right. I am sinful. I am a sinner. I do believe in you, Jesus, that you died for me. She rose from the dead. And that's the basics of it. So don't allow anyone or any, any cultural idea or religious idea to add an additional requirement to what Jesus did at the cross. Because when Jesus was on the cross and he gave up his spirit, he said, it is finished. And that was a legal term. And it was, a, it was actually, a, it's even a legal term of, a, of accounting. The legal term of accounting is the same thing that would be written on a bill to say that it was paid in full. That you are no longer obligated anymore to pay a debt. That's the significance behind what Jesus says when he says, it is finished. The meaning there is that it is paid. It is paid in full. There's nothing else to pay. And there's no other payment that's adequate. That's, that's what we have to get at and to understand with what Jesus did for us on the cross. He just didn't go to the cross to show us how to die. He didn't just go to the cross to show us what it means to, to give yourself for others. Like those things are true, but it's so much more than that. So much more than that. Verse 12 It says, And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And after they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon, that's Peter that he's talking about, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people of his name. And with the words of the prophets agree, with this the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. That the rest of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from old. And quotes there from Amos 
chapter 9. And then he says, Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. And from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Okay, now, let's break this down for a minute. So, James here, leading the church, you know, it's, it's certainly not just Peter, and it doesn't seem that even Peter is like the, the main, main one. But he says here, you know, write these, you know, I want you to understand these things. Brothers, you know, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from her people from his name. And he, then he uses the scripture to give evidence and to, be, and to give proof that this is not something, you know, we're just making up. It's like, yes, we have the context of what just happened. We've all seen it with our eyes. But it's also in accordance with what the scripture, the Old Testament scripture, testified would happen. And so we're using, we have, the, we have two points of evidence. We have the practical, what we've all seen with our eyes evidence, but we also have the scriptural evidence. And especially when you consider these things together, that what God has done and what God has said would happen, and what is happening now that we are witnessing these things, do not put a, a yoke and a burden on these new Gentile believers to go back underneath a law that we weren't able to, to follow. We weren't able to hold and to carry. But then he does give them some practical things that they should stay away from. He gives them some things that they shouldn't participate in, that they shouldn't do. And so this is where the reality comes in that good works do follow faith. We've already answered the question, how is a person saved? A person is saved by God's grace through faith. But then once a person is saved and they, and they believe in Him, there should be a changing in one's life and lifestyle according to the ways of Jesus. Jesus said, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things that I say? Okay? Jesus said, do not, you know, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things that I say? He expects us to follow Him. We had already read from Ephesians 2, 8, 9 that said, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one can brag. We've already declared that salvation is not about works. But then, verse 10 says, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And this is the key to the whole story. And this is what takes away the confusion that so many then had and so many in our day have today. And this is what takes away the confusion. That good works follow salvation. That grace and faith are necessary, God's grace and or faith are necessary for salvation. And then good works follow salvation. It's an it's a key thing in terms of the order of operations. We have order of operations in other aspects, right? You know, sometimes on you know, Facebook, throw, people throw all these math problems on there. And um, it all comes down to whether you get the right answer or the wrong answer, the order of operations. 
every time. It's the order of operations. We'll get to, in math, if you have the right order of operations, you will come out with the right answer. If you have the wrong order of operations, you come out with the wrong answer. Okay? We go back in our history, you know, where we don't live, you know, in our culture, still around the world, you have a lot of this, horse and buggies, horse and cart, okay, sort of thing. Now, so you've got a cart, so you've got two wheels, and you've got these sticks coming out from that that attach to the horse, right? Now, I want you to visualize in your mind where you've got those wheels and you've got those sticks and they're in the ground, okay, and a man is sitting up on top, and then another person puts the horse behind that cart and says, push. Well, if it goes anywhere, the cart's going to flip over, the man's going to get squashed and then trampled on, okay? That's what happens in that wrong order of operations. And so when people put good works in the wrong place, everybody gets trampled on. It doesn't work. It doesn't work out. Faith and grace have to come you know, first, and then the, the works follow. And I understand my illustration got a little bit crossed on all of that, but I think you get the point. That when you have to have the right order of operations when it comes to salvation and works. Salvation comes first and then the works. But what we find so many times, because if you sit down with most people and you say, you ask the question, how does a person go to heaven or how does a person become right with God? The answer usually begins with the word good. And what I mean by that is a person has to be good. Or a person has to do good things. And if they do those good things, then they'll be okay with God. But it's a wrong order of operations. And that wrong order of operations leads people to hell. With the illusion that they're okay because they've done enough good. Entire religions are based on this. You know, in Islam, the belief is that you have an angel on your right shoulder who writes down everything good that you do. And you have an angel on your left shoulder who writes down everything bad that you do. And at the end, the scales are weighed. Now, there can be no assurance. In in Islam, there is zero assurance. None whatsoever. It's an I hope so religion. Understand that very clearly. It is an I hope so. Because they say, well, if you, know, if you have more good than bad, then the odds are in your favor. But Allah might not like you, and therefore it doesn't matter. Or you may have more bad than good, but Allah has mercy and favor on you, and then you're okay. So it ends up, this puts the, you, you can live your life in a way that tilts things in your favor, but you still can't be sure. But there are a lot of Christian using that in quotation marks, Christian religions that teach the same thing, that you know you have to do good, and if you do good, God will accept you because you're good. And we say no to that. We say no that we don't deserve and cannot be good enough. God's grace has won the day. But because God is gracious, we want to live our lives as a thank you to God, where the scripture says, walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. Walk worthy of the grace of God. So we do so not out of fear and not out of trying to earn something, but out of, a, out of respect and out of saying thank you and out of love. And motivation is very key there. 
Motivation is, is extremely key. But he gives them some very practical things on, on the work side of it, the after the salvation part, because it's like we're not going to lose this opportunity. Because it's important that these believers become mature disciples of Jesus Christ. And what are some things that could hinder their maturity? Now, some of these things may seem odd to us, and some of them may, like, okay, well, that makes perfect sense. Um, let's read what those are that, they, they gave, that he gave. We should write to them from a, abstain from things polluted by idols. Okay, and so, that's the, that's the first one. We're basically taking these as three things. One is things that are polluted by idols. So, they shouldn't participate in the feasts that are towards, you know, false gods. You know, again, they remember that they live in this very polytheistic, you know, many, many different gods, you know, of the Romans, you know, that had adopted from the Greeks. And so that they shouldn't participate knowingly, like, we're going to sit down and eat this food that's been sacrificed, you know, to God, to other gods. Because we don't, it was an, and I believe that that was an issue of testimony. We don't want to appear as saying that these gods are real or they're true. Now, you may remember later on, you know, Paul writes some things, um, specifically in the book of, of Romans, you know, about issues of conscience. And, you know, he, if you go into somebody's house, you don't just sit, you don't go like, hey, was that sacrifice to an idol? You know, you don't like just go out and ask that. You just take it with thanksgiving. If nothing's said about it, you don't, you know, worry about it. But it's an issue of testimony of everybody being aware and knowing that you're sitting down and you're taking, like, participating in a feast of that nature. And a lot of times the ceremonies that the people would have and the celebrations that they had would be in these temples that were two false gods. You know, so it's like you've got to draw a line, you know, they're being told to draw a line there and not to participate in those sorts of things. From sexual immorality. Now that's... um, one that's probably going to be true in every culture and in any culture that you would write to. But, you know, again, in this time, you know, the, the Romans were, they had a lot of license, you know, when it came to their, um, you know, sexual activities. And, you know, there's, um, there, there's even uh, a replacement that happened from, you know, even when we just celebrated Valentine's Day, we just had Valentine's Day, right? Um, so there was old, you know, things that the, at those times that the uh, Romans had, and then later on the church kind of, you know, okay, we don't want to do that pagan stuff, so we're going to turn this around a little bit and make it something that works with, you know, okay to do in our beliefs. Uh, because in, that, in those Roman festivals, and it's, and it's a little hard to know, like, when exactly did this start? Were they doing this at this time? I can't give you 100% certainty on that. Um, but even the exchanging of names, you know, like we do Valentine's, exchanging of names. In, in Roman times, they did exchanging of names for, that would be your sexual partner for the festival. Okay? So that's how they did exchanging of names on that. Yeah, that's pretty, would be pretty gross. Um, and there's lots of other, other practices that they did that we won't even talk about this morning because they're, they're just... Um, degrading. Okay, so we, you know, that's that's the culture, you know, that these believers are are coming to know Jesus in. That's what they're coming out of, 
and what they're surrounded by. Now, if they're going to take following Jesus seriously, you know, one of the things that Jesus said, you know, even in his own culture was, hey, it's been said to you, you know, like, do not commit adultery. But I say to you, if a man looks after a woman with lust in his heart, if he's committing adultery, like, it's not just even about your actions, it's also about purifying your mind and, and your heart before the Lord and, you know, and your motives and your intentions. Like, Jesus' standard when it comes to sexual, you know, purity is, is really high. And that's true whether you're single, whether you're married, you know, whatever the case is, his standard is still really, you know, is still really high for us. And it's difficult for us to take the way of Jesus when our culture is so extremely sexualized. Like everything is sexualized. A hamburger is sexualized. It's a hamburger, people. Like, can't we just eat a hamburger and enjoy the fact that it's good just for being a hamburger? If you like hamburgers like I do. But can't you just enjoy it for that? You do have to sexualize the hamburger. Does that make it taste better if it's sexualized? I don't really understand that. Yet, based on our advertising that is on all of our televisions, a hamburger is sexual. I mean, think about the absurdity of that. Yeah, it makes you not want a hamburger, okay? It's, it's absurd, the absurdity of all of that. And yet, we hardly even question it because it's just 24-7 in our, you know, around us. So you can see how, for these believers here, if they're not taught better, just because they come to the Lord doesn't mean that they instantly know what all the standards are and, and, and how, they should, how they should view you know, a, a marriage, male-female relationship, all of those sort of things. It's something that has to be taught. Something that has to be taught. Um, and so, there we have it. So that's one. And then we have this other that seems, maybe seems odd to us. Uh, from what has been strangled and from blood. Um, you know, in our way of producing, um, you know, food... You know, we, we cut the throats of, I mean, it's a little graphic here, but just reality. We cut the throats of the animals, and the animals are hung up so that that blood, you know, drains out. Okay? And in some of these cultures, they didn't do that. They would strangle the animal, and so all the blood stays in. But from God's perspective, you know, when he made us, one of the things that, um, you know, even for an animal, what makes animals different from the rest of creation you know, the fact that they're, they are alive and that life is in the blood, you know, really, you know, that's so, so critical for our lives. If we don't have, if you don't have blood, you lose too much blood, what happens to the rest of your body? Well, it just stops working. You die, it stops working, okay? So there is something kind of sacred and, and, and yeah, it's sacred before God, you know, and so it's not something that's supposed to be taken, um, you know, in a frivolous way. You know, we're so disconnected from our food today that we hardly know the difference between these things. I've had people ask the question, wait, does that mean I shouldn't have a steak like medium rare? You know, because it says not to have, you know, the blood or whatever. And like, no, that's, complete, that's a completely different thing. You would, know the, you would know the difference if you were at a feast and an animal had been strangled and that food was given to you versus how you get it in the supermarket today. Okay. 
just that we're so disconnected from our food that we don't get all those differences because most of us don't slaughter our own food anymore. Okay. That's, now that we've gotten all that out there, it's, you know, that's one of the great things about going chapter by chapter, chapter, verse by verse of Scripture, you get to talk about some of this stuff that otherwise, you know, who are, I don't know many preachers that are going around going, hey, you know what I'm going to talk about today? Just, off, just topically, just topically, I'm just going to talk about the differences between animals being strangled and their throats cut. I'm going to, I'm going to do, you know, that's not going to be like on the top of the, top of the list for priorities. So but anyway, but it was important in this time and it's important, you know, we should take note of that as well. Um, and so we need to ask the question in terms of the power of culture, uh, you know, what would those things be today? What would be, what would be written to us if the apostles were writing us a letter and saying, "Hey, you know, just so you're clear and so you make sure you understand, salvation is by God's grace through faith." Okay, you got that. But there's also some things. Hey, we want to make sure you don't trip up in your faith. So, what are we going to write and warn you about? What would those be? What would those be that in your culture are going to be potential places of obstacle, potential places to trip up? What would those be? We'll come back to that um, in a minute, but let's go ahead and finish out verses 22 through 35, because this is where we're at in verse 22. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, Although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and to send them with our beloved Barnabas and Saul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what you have been sacrificed to idols and from blood, from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep these th- yourselves from these things, you will do well. Farewell. So then when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they re- read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brethren with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace to the, by the brethren to those who had been who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. Um, yeah, so that's basically the summary and the conclusion you know, of the matter. They have the letter, but they also have you know, the, the many words that are able to be spoken. They can give any sort of clarifications that are necessary. Um, they're able to expand on these things. They're able to encourage the people. And you can imagine that those meetings would be pretty awesome. If you've got Judas and Silas, um, those brothers there from the Church of Jerusalem, Paul and Barnabas, and you've got others that have come with them, and they're all sharing and preaching the word, there's going to be some awesome messages 
that church is going to be encouraged. Uh, they're going to be built up. They're going to be even more desiring to go and to share their faith because the way of the Lord for them has not been burdensome. Yes, there, there are things in their lifestyle that they've needed to change, but it hasn't come down to like a, a new set of religious regulations that they would then have to follow and, and then have a mentality of, I hope I've done it well enough to be accepted by God. And that's really the big difference. That's really been the big difference. You know, when you, when you have a person who's trusting in themselves and their ability to keep the rules and their ability to be good enough, there's always that question, there's a lingering question of doubt of, have I, have I done a good enough job? Have I been good enough? Is God actually going to accept me into his heaven? Have I done enough to please him? Dear friend, please, please do not have that mentality in your life. So much better when you ask the question, you know, is God going to let me into his heaven? Is God going to accept me? To know he already has. Not because of what I have done. Not because of my goodness. But because of his goodness and what Jesus has done on the cross in my place, on my behalf. That he was the perfect sacrifice, the Lamb of God. And what he is in that is he is your substitute. Because at the end of the day, standing before God, before judgment, God is either going to look at you or at Jesus. Whether you should be accepted in or already are accepted in, or rejected, he's either looking at you or at Jesus. You in your flesh, or at Jesus Christ and his righteousness. He's looking at the perfection of Jesus, or the imperfection of me, or the imperfection of you. Now, which of those do you want him evaluating? But there has to be the humility. This is the key to it. The humility to do away with the human pride that says, I want to stand on my own. And to humble oneself, you know, to be on one's face before God and say, Lord, forgive me. I'm a sinner. I've done what is wrong in your sight and I'm only saved by your grace. I believe in you. I trust in you. It's not my goodness. It's not my goodness, but it's your love, your grace that has made, that makes the difference. That makes the difference. And this, I hope, gives us great confidence as we share Jesus with others, that we are sharing a confident salvation. We are not sharing an I hope so with people. We are not saying, hey, believe this or do this or have this, and then you can hope that God will accept you. But we are sharing, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Certain, definite, no question. Why? Because God is faithful to keep his promises. So I hope you rest on that this morning. Even as you take the bread and the cup, if you're a believer in Jesus and you affirm, Lord, my hope and my trust is in you and not in myself. 
that you are reminded this morning of, of where your righteousness, where your right standing before God comes from. That's sourced in God and not in us. But then there has to be that response to say, okay, if He is my Savior, I need to treat Him as such. He is my King. I need to treat Him as such. I need to obey and I need to follow. And I can only do that again in His power because we've already proven that the flesh is worthless for such a task. I can only do that in, the, in my spirit, which is infused with the Spirit of God, which is empowered by the Spirit of God. And so I can walk with the Lord in His power. Walk with the Lord in His power. And then it is good to ask that, those questions. What in our culture would be written to? You know, perhaps it would be, maybe one of the things we would see would be, stay away from racism. Like, have nothing to do with that, because that will certainly not please God. You know, I mean, maybe that would be one of the things that would be written in in our culture today, where where such things are still, maybe more subtly so, but still prevalent. Even as we've seen this week in our in our own community. And and just so you're, some people, are like, what, are you, what are you talking about? You know, when there what was a restaurant in town that had closed in. Um, Saying, "Hey, we, we want to support you know the people that aren't are not documented, um, you know here. We know a lot of them work hard in our community, and then you know people wrote you know people put um, swastika. I just said that word. You know the the German um, swastikas. Thank you uh, symbols on the on the paper and curse words and you know I'll take my money elsewhere and those sorts of things." And, you know, a lot of people say, well, I'm shocked and surprised. And my question is, why are you shocked and surprised? Because we still, you know, the human heart, the human heart is still bent towards evil. Still bent towards evil. And it's on all sides. I had to ask this question to someone the other day. He said, you know, if you took four people that were known to be in the KKK and put them in their KKK uniforms... And then you put, you know, 50 people with baseball bats in a field and none of them knew the Lord and they were, you know, hyped up, said you can do what you want. What would happen to those four men? It wouldn't go well. It wouldn't go well. And so, you know, we have a, a, a problem in our culture, in our society, even today. We, we have a hatred problem. We have a racism problem. We have a violence problem. We have, we have all of these, all of these things, all of these things. We have, and I think the Lord um, would have us to confront that. You know, and, and, and somebody might ask the questions like, "Well, you know, wasn't the Roman culture? You know, wasn't anything written about violence? You know, to these, to these Gentiles? I think it's kind of understood when you come to know Jesus, love." God, love your neighbor as yourself, love your enemies, that those teachings of Jesus would ring true. But also at this point, 
you know, yes, there was, Rome, there was violence in the wars and things like that that they had, but there's no, col- there's no Colosseum yet here. We, we have, Roman culture has not degraded at this point in history. Like we're, we're probably about 20 years away from the Colosseum beginning construction. Okay, this, this letter is written about A.D. 50. So you've got about A.D. 70 past that before the Colosseum's even built. You've got 264 A.D. before the first gladiator games actually take place. So the Roman culture had not devolved so much in, in those regards. Um, and, and our culture isn't there, but it is closer to there, I would argue. Um, it is closer there. And we need to be aware of these, of these things and ask that question and have your own conscience and come to your own conclusion on what those things are. But what would be written to you? You make it very personal even. What would they write to me and warn me to stay away from that this could trip you up? I mean, we've got to imagine we live in the most affluent society. They say, I don't, I'm not 100% convinced that it's true, but they say we're the most affluent society ever on the planet, period. I, I'm not 100% sold on that, but we've got to be up in the top couple percent. At least. Any trip-ups in that for us? Any trip-ups? You know, and it's... Uh, and, I, and I would argue, it's, you know, the, the Church of the United States has never had more. And on a percentage basis, it's probably never given less. Think about that. What are the trip-ups for us? What are, the trip, what are the things that are going to make us stumble? We have to stand before the Lord and give an account. We still, you know, it's not an issue of our salvation, but there's still the Bema seat, the, the seat that, that Paul talked about, like at the, at the Olympic Games, you know, where those who run receive the prize or haven't run well. Well, don't we all want to run well? I mean, when it comes to, you know, life with Jesus, don't we all want to run it well? You know, that should be a desire. Live worthy of the calling with which they're called. But I find myself, and I can only speak personally on this, but I'm so easily sucked in by what my world tells me I need to value, what my culture tells me I need to value. I'm very easily sucked in. Probably not alone. I'm very easily sucked in. So I have to evaluate that. You have to evaluate that before the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love and for your, your goodness to us. We thank you that despite the fact that we've been in rebellion against you, God, that your grace and your love are greater, Lord. Really, it is greater. greater than our rebellion, more powerful than our rebellion, that Jesus, what you did on the cross was more powerful than what Adam and Eve did in the garden. For those of us who come to you and and trust in you, Lord Jesus, we pray that by your spirit you would help us to walk worthy of the calling which we were called. Help us not to be 
distracted and tripped up by the things of this world. Help us to follow you faithfully. Help us to surrender to you and to give the things that we want to hold in our hands and clutch to, that we, sur- that we would surrender those to you, Lord. Help us, Lord Jesus, we pray. And we take the bread and cup this morning, we give you thanks. As we recognize that all we have to do is put away our pride, all we have to do is put away our pride and say, yes, Lord, I believe that, Jesus, you had to go to a cross. You had to take upon yourself all of our sin there, that what had been united in, in, in fellowship from eternity past, had to be separated in those dark moments. We know the cost for you, O God, was great. And so, though free to us, help us not to treat our salvation as some cheap thing. Thanks, Lord Jesus, in your precious name.